One of the things that I love about this time of year is typically during the Christmas season, you do things you don't normally do, right? And it's just, just different opportunities. And I was thinking back to one of those uh, years ago, we uh, went with my parents, Sean and I, it was before we even had kids, but we went with my parents to the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. They were playing at the Myers in downtown Dallas, and uh, we got all dressed up and hobnobbed with all the other sophisticates in Dallas, you know, at the Symphony Orchestra. And yet the whole time I was there, I, I just have to admit, I kind of felt like a fraud because I know that I don't appreciate classical music the way I should. Now, I feel like my IQ just dropped five points just by admitting that, but it's true. I'm just being honest. Uh, I appreciated a lot of aspects of that evening. I appreciated the family time together. I appreciated seeing the Myersons incredible. The acoustics are amazing. The talent of the musicians is just off the charts. It was all great. But at the same time, like, you know, I just probably don't fully appreciate that, that music the way that I should, with one exception. And that is, there's always some rendition of parts of Handel's Messiah when you do that, you know. And, and whenever I read Isaiah 9-6, which will be one of our passages today where it talks about wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. In my head, I hear this. I'm just kidding. I'm not really going to sing that for you because I don't want to ruin it. I want you to hear it in your head. It will sound a whole lot better if you hear that in your own head than if you hear me singing it. But every time I'm in Isaiah 9, like that, that chorus comes back to mind. And today, that's where we're going to be, and we will jump into a little bit of background as we have before. But then, we're going to talk about these names. And I'm going to ask you this question and start thinking about this now. The question is, and where in your life do you most need to experience? Uh, which of these names describes what you need to experience from Jesus today? You know, is it that wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? And we're going to walk through all of those. But before we do, a little background, let's catch up. We were in Isaiah 7 last week talking about the king. His name was Ahaz. The king of the, of the southern uh, kingdom of Judah was terrified because the northern kingdom and the Syrians aligned together to come against him and attack him. And so God sends Isaiah to Ahaz to say, don't worry about it. It's not going to come to pass. And he even invites him, ask me for a sign, anything you want. It can be as deep as Sheol, it can be as high as heaven, anything you want, ask, and I will grant to prove that this, in fact, is true. And Ahaz refused to ask God for a sign. And you may remember he tried to sound all spiritual, you know, I don't want to put God to the test. But the real issue was that he lacked faith. And so because he wouldn't ask for a sign, God said, okay, I will give you one anyway. Uh, and that's where we get Isaiah 7, 14. 14, where it talks about the virgin will give birth and, and give birth to a son. You will name him Emmanuel, uh, which means God with us. And that would be the sign that God would come, that this Messiah would come. Um, but even in the immediate time, he said, I'm going to rescue you from that. Ahaz, though, was unwilling to believe. He was unwilling to put his faith in God. And then you get into chapter 8, and you see what happened because his faith was in the Assyrians. Ahaz aligned himself with the Assyrians and said, come and protect us. He even went so far as he took all the, the uh, gold and silver out of the temple of God and gave that to the king of Assyria to encourage him to come and, and help him out. I mean, that's pretty bad. When God himself says, I will defend you, and he's like, no, I think I'll take the stuff out of your temple and I'll give it to a pagan king to come defend me. That's what he did. 
And so there were consequences for that, and the northern kingdom gets destroyed by the Assyrians, 722 B.C. You get down to verse 8 in Isaiah chapter 8, and is speaking figuratively about the banks of the river of, of Assyria overflowing, and it says that it came up to their necks. This is talking about uh, Ahaz and his kingdom. It didn't completely engulf them. They weren't completely drowned. They weren't wiped out yet. But it got really close. And there was a lot of, of negative, there were a lot of negative things that happened because Ahaz was unwilling to trust God. Now, we had an interesting conversation in our Connect group on Tuesday night about this fact that Ahaz was a man of deep faith. He was. The problem was his faith was in the wrong thing. It wasn't faith in God. It was, I'm going to put my faith in the Assyrians to come and rescue me. My question for us, where's your faith? I mean, you're, you're trusting in something, right? We all are. We're all, it could be faith in self. It could be faith in someone. It could be faith in our education, our ability, our, our money, our whatever. We're all trusting in something. Ahaz was trusting in the wrong thing. And so there were consequences and it didn't go well. You get to the end of chapter 8. The second part is basically I'm saying, why fear these people just fear me? Why you know, consult these other spiritual avenues when you have me? But all that is eventually going to change, and that's Isaiah chapter 9. This is, this is what will eventually come. Follow along with me, Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, beginning of Isaiah 9... Verse 1, he starts to talk about how there will be no more gloom for those who are in anguish. Who are those who are in anguish? It's the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. It says previously they've been brought into contempt in this latter time uh, that, that that won't be the case. The, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali were part of the, the northernmost parts of the territory of Israel. And the Assyrians were coming from the north. So they were invading, starting with Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, think about it in terms of Russia when they invaded Ukraine. The outlying cities, the ones that were border cities, were the ones that were, were most at risk, uh, especially early on, right? And so those that were closest to the Assyrians, Zebulun and Naphtali, are taking the worst of it. But he said because they have had it so rough here, the time is coming when that will not be the case. 
In fact, it says the people that once walked in darkness, verse 2, have seen a great light. Let's read it. Let's read about that. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. It says, now when he heard, this is talking about Jesus, of course, in the beginning of his public ministry. When he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isn't that a cool fulfillment of this promise in Isaiah 9 when it says these lands that were in darkness are going to see a light? I mean, what better way is there to to see light than for the Son of God Himself, the coming Messiah, the light of the world, to live in those very lands? And that's exactly what happened. And I read that, and I don't know about you, that encourages me because this is God keeping His promise, a promise that was made 750 years earlier, 722 B.C. is when the Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom. So this is about 750 years later that Jesus comes to live in this area and fulfills that promise of God. But back to Isaiah 9, and we will jump into the, these names of the coming Messiah. But before we do, let me just point out a couple of things that he says as he's giving this prophecy of what is to come. And we're probably more familiar with verse 6 maybe than we are the verses leading up to it. But in verse 3, it says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. First thing that, that I see here is that we can have great joy. The coming of the Messiah brings joy. And he says specifically for this area it will bring joy. And so much so that it will be like you're at harvest time. You know, the joy of having plenty and abundance. Or like dividing spoils from war. There's, there's, there's victory here. There's joy. I'm sure you know this already. But let me just remind you that one of the character qualities that should set us apart as followers of Jesus is joy. It's the presence of joy. I mean, Jesus obviously said, by this people will know us if we love one another. So love is a huge part of that too. But I think joy can be closely connected to that. And in Psalm uh, 1611, it, it says, You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. Last Sunday we talked about the coming Messiah. One of the names given to him was Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, just think about that for a moment. That God chose to become one of us. But when we enter into a relationship with Christ, this Emmanuel, God with us, literally becomes God with us and in us. Through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of Christ in our lives and we are in his presence continually. Back to Psalm 1611. In his presence is what? It's fullness of joy. Well, if, if his presence is in us continually, and in his presence is fullness of joy, then there should be joy in us, right? Doesn't mean that you're always going to be happy and everything's going to be perfect and you're never going to struggle in life. But I have to tell you that 
it's a bit disturbing to me that some of us as self-identified followers of Jesus walk around looking like we got baptized in pickle juice. You know? Like there, there is joy in his presence and he is in us. And he talks about the joy that will come as a result of the coming Messiah. And then another thing that it says here, um, verse 4, it talks about the yoke of the burden and the staff of the shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. All those things are going to be broken. In fact, it says broken as on the day of Midian. It's that we can be set free. The Messiah is coming to set us free. And it says you'll be set free as in the day of Midian. That's a reference back to God's deliverance of the people through Gideon when they were under the oppression of the Midianites. And if you remember that story without going into a lot of detail, basically God delivered them without them ever having to fight. He turned the Midianites on one another. And so it was definitely God's deliverance of his people And he's saying, look, I I, I can set you free, and you don't have to work for it. You don't have to do it. Jesus has done all of the work already. And he wants to to give us freedom as a result of that. So I just remind you that. I don't know what it might be in your life. Maybe there's something that feels like it has a death grip on you. And that there's no way you could ever find freedom. Maybe, in fact, you just kind of given up and thought, I guess I'll just never get past he can give freedom. Christ can do that for us. He can set us free from whatever it is that keeps us captive. Verse 5 says, so much so that the, the boot of the tramping warrior and the garment rolled in blood, all those things, they're just going to be fuel for the fire. They're not necessary anymore. She's going to burn them up. How does this happen? Where does this freedom come from? Verse 6, it's not what I would have expected. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. Now, can I just say that when I think of someone coming to set someone free, I'm thinking of a William Wallace, you know, Braveheart type, right? War paint on their face, fire in their voice. But a child? I mean, yeah, the joy part I get, right? child can bring a lot of joy, but I don't think of a child coming to set us free. This is no ordinary child. This is the Messiah, and he's not coming to do it physically, which is what so many people expected. He was coming to give us spiritual freedom, freedom internally. But that's why Jesus has come, to bring deliverance. Now, the rest of this, when he talks about, verse 7, the increase of the government and of his peace, there will be no end. You know, some of what is predicted here, we have not yet seen fulfilled Some prophecy is fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. Some of it is the second coming when he comes back. And we were in Revelation here just recently. Revelation 20 talks about the millennial reign of Christ. And so that's when truly his government and his peace will be completely in control. We're not there yet, uh, but we will be at some point uh, in the future when he does come back. But that does not mean that we can't still experience who he is. And so let's talk about these names uh, that, are, that are given here, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Before we jump in, I want to be real clear about one thing. These are ways that we know Jesus as we have a relationship with him. That personal relationship is the key. And there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and having a relationship with Jesus. 
I suspect that all of us in the room, I suspect that everybody that's watching online right now or listening, you know something about Jesus. We're entering into the Christmas season, right? You probably know that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem and you know that uh, he, he loved people deeply and he performed miracles and he was a great teacher. You probably have already heard that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead. You may or may not believe all of those things, but you probably at least know those things about him. Or you have heard those things about him. But here's the thing. Even if you do believe all of those facts, and, and those things are necessary in order to have a relationship with him, we have to believe those things, but just believing them alone is not enough. By believe, I mean up here, like like mentally saying, I agree that this is factual information. That's not enough. In the book of James, it says, you believe there is one God. And then it says, good, even the demons believe. And then it adds and shudder. And I would add that the people who were the very first to recognize who Jesus was, that called them by his, the Son of God, what do you want with us, Son of the Most High God? Those were demon-possessed people. They, it was evil spirits that actually recognized Jesus as the Son of God. So that's not enough, right? We, there has to be, become a point of trust. Romans 10, 9 and 10, talks about if you um, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So yes, the believe is important, but there has to be a confession of Christ as Lord of our lives. There has to be a surrender. I'm, I'm committing my life to you. I'm giving myself to you. And I want to be really clear about that on the front end, that, that that's the first step that is necessary so that we then can know him as he reveals himself here. And some of the ways that, that he reveals himself in verse 6, starting with wonderful counselor. That Hebrew term translated as wonderful means something a little bit different from the way I normally use that word. And I say that word a lot. Gas prices have dropped. Wonderful. So-and-so is doing well. He's home from the hospital. Oh, that's wonderful. The Cowboys won again. Wonderful. My leg's feeling a whole lot better. I can walk a lot better. Wonderful. I don't need that scooter to get around anymore. That's not so wonderful, because that thing was a lot of fun, and I'm really having a hard time giving that up. But normally, using that term wonderful just means, oh, that's great, right? In Hebrew, it means something a little different. It means extraordinary or hard to understand. Isn't that interesting? That our wonderful counselor can sometimes be so extraordinary that he's hard to understand. And look at the life of Jesus. People didn't get it, Right? Even his own disciples so many times were like, explain this to us. We're not tracking. Like, Help us understand. He spoke in parables and he said things. And, and it was so wonderful, so extraordinary, that in a lot of times they, they had a hard time grasping it. And he would, of course, break it down. Um, but the bottom line is sometimes this wonderful counselor will, will lead us down paths that don't make sense that we may not totally understand. They're, they're beyond, they're too wonderful for us to completely understand at the time. Makes me think about the look on Stephen's face when we, uh, I took him on with us on a mission trip to Kenya. It was his first time to go. And we fly into Nairobi, we get in our vans, and we're headed to the hotel. And we're, we're headed down the main road, and there are some good roads there in Nairobi. Depending on where you are, you know, good road is kind of 
relative term, but we got off the, the good road and went down one of these side dirt roads. It looked like it was going in the middle of nowhere. And there's little lean-tos on the side of the road and little families over there. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I was waiting for a band of terrorists to jump out and into the road, and we were done. Like, that's, that's what it felt like. Where we were off the beaten path. And I'll never forget Stephen just looking at me, and he didn't say anything, but his eyes said, is this okay? And all I could do was just kind of smile, and I said, welcome to Kenya. Because that's just kind of how things are. And not much longer after that, we come pulling up through the backside of a hotel. They open this back gate and we come in through the back. See, the driver knew the whole time exactly where he was going. It didn't look like it to us in the moment. And we were a little bit afraid, but he knew what he was doing. His job was to deliver us safely to the intended destination, and that's what he did. Let me just tell you, God's job is to deliver us to the intended destination. And he does. Sometimes it might look like, man, I don't, I don't understand the path that you're taking. This is a little bit too wonderful, right? A little bit too extraordinary for me to, to, to wrap my mind around. Trust him to drive the bus. He'll get you there. The second name qualifies him to do this is why we can trust him because he is the mighty God. The word mighty refers to a military hero or a champion. It's the idea that God fights on behalf of his people. Psalm 24 verse 8 says this twice in one verse. It says, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. When we don't fully understand, when he's too extraordinary, too wonderful for us to understand, we can trust that he is our mighty God who fights on our behalf. But we need to let him do it. You know, I, I know we all have um, different challenges when it comes to living out our faith, right? One of mine, I probably shared this before, one of the biggest ones for me is I want to plan everything out. I want to be in control. You know, I, I, and sometimes I'm so incredibly foolish that I think I can come up with a better plan than God does. But trusting him as the mighty God means I allow him to fight my battles for me. I didn't spend less time worrying or, or even, it's not even as much worrying for me a lot of times as it is just planning. I've got to figure this out. More time praying, more time seeking God and just saying, you lead and wherever you lead, I'll follow because I trust you. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Eventually, Sometimes they feel a little crooked in the meantime, right? But God does know where he's going, and he will eventually get us there. Going back to, to what he said earlier in Isaiah um, verse 9, verse 4, when he talks about breaking the rod of the oppressor, he says, as you have broken on the day of Midian. Going back to that story, when Gideon put together an army, God kept whittling it down and whittling it down, and it got smaller and smaller and smaller, and then finally, when it was time for them to surround the camp, they broke their jars and people turned against one another. God turned them on one another. They didn't have to fight at all. He is the mighty God, the one who fights on our behalf. So knowing that ought to drive us more to prayer. It ought to drive us more to 
Scripture and, and, and to trusting and allowing God to do what God does. And the reason we can trust Him is because He is the everlasting Father. That term translated as everlasting denotes past and future. So He always has been, He always will be. He's the everlasting Father. Now we might read that and think, okay, this is talking about the coming of the Messiah. Interesting term, Father, isn't it? Because Jesus we know as the Son. We know that God is Trinity. He's one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the Father's the Father and the Son is the Son and the Spirit's the Spirit. But why is the coming Messiah referred to as everlasting Father? I think one of the reasons is because there are fatherly qualities in the coming of, of Christ. His coming allows him to guide us, to lead us, to protect us, to provide for us all of these things that a good father should do. Guys, I know that not everybody has been blessed with a good earthly father that does these things. But I can tell you, you have an everlasting father in God who wants to provide all of those things for us. The key, going back to what we said earlier, is we got to trust him for it. And we have to allow him to do that. Those of you that are parents understand this. When your kids are little, I mean, Colin, Katie... No issues right now. You kind of, you know, you take care of your kids. They're at a young age. They, they, they have to depend on you for pretty much everything, right? But as the kids get older, they start sitting in middle sections like this. You know, you all become pretty independent. And you can take care of yourself. You can do things for yourself. And so the, the, the role as parent begins to shift a little bit. You know, when they're young, if you don't feed an infant and change an infant and bathe them and, you know, all that, they're going to die or they're going to get sick. But as they get older, I hope you're able to bathe yourself, feed yourself, clean yourself. That would be important. There's the, the, the relationship changes. I mean, we, we have two daughters uh, and a son-in-law. Um, daughter, the oldest is 25. Youngest is 20, almost 22, be 22 next month. The dynamic is different now in the relationship. I'm still the father, but the way we interact. And can I just tell you, I'm just confession time here. It is hard because I mentioned my control issues earlier, but it is hard for me to, to bite my tongue sometimes. You know, I feel like there's something of value that I can add or step in in some way, and I want to do that, but I know I just need to bite my tongue. Now, if you ask my girls, they'd probably tell you he's not biting enough. He probably needs to do a little bit more of that, right? But there comes a point in that relationship, my relationship as father with my kids, where there's not much I can do unless they want that, right? Unless they're, they're willing to receive that. And the same is true in our relationship with our everlasting Father. He's not going to force His way on us. But as we turn to Him, boy, is He ever there to, to provide everything that we need. And when we allow Him to do that, that's when we begin to experience Him as our Prince of Peace. The term Prince can mean Chief, Commander, Captain. He's the one who is in charge, like the Prince of Peace. I mean, everything revolves around Jesus as our Prince of Peace. So let me just remind you today that the only way to find real, lasting peace is through Jesus. That's it. We can try a lot of different avenues, and it may, you know, temporarily give us some relief and make us feel better for a period of time. But if you want to have real peace, you need to know the Prince of Peace. He is the one who gives us 
peace. I just ask you a simple question. Are you at peace? I mean, really? Do you have peace in your life? Let me share with you a, um, a prayer request that we received recently. And I always appreciate people sharing their prayer requests, and especially the ones that are very vulnerable and very honest. Somebody said this. They said, I feel as though I'm existing. I don't have a bad life at all. On the outside, people look at me and think my life is perfect and I don't struggle. But inside, I feel empty. I want to find purpose in Christ again. See, that to me is somebody saying, I need to know peace. I, I need to know the, the Prince of Peace in a more personal way. And I wonder if there's anybody here that can relate to that. I wonder when you hear that, if you think, man, that's me. You know, it looks like everything's good and people on the outside might think I have it all together. But deep down, I, I, I don't. And I don't have peace. I want you to know that peace today. And the only way that's going to happen is by knowing the Prince of Peace. So what is it that's holding you from, holding you back from just saying, I give myself to you fully. I want to surrender my heart and my life to you. Again, the only way we come to know him as the Prince of Peace or any of these other names that we talked about is when we surrender our lives fully to him and we give ourselves to him. Then we begin to know him as the Prince of Peace. As we wrap things up today, um, we're, we're going to have a visible reminder of that. We're going to have a visible symbol that reminds us of how we can experience uh, Christ in all of these ways. And uh, as Aaron comes and gets ready, he's just going to kind of lead us through a time where we can uh, just, just have some time to reflect. We're going to take communion together. And um, as we get ready to do that, I just want you to think about this. Communion is a picture of the gospel. It's the body of Jesus broken for us. It's the blood of Jesus spilled for us. He did all of those things to take the, the penalty for our sins so that we could know him personally. And we'll, we'll take the elements together in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to ask you to consider this question. Of those four names that we talked about today, which of those do you need to, to experience in your life today? I mean, do you, do you need to, to, to recognize him as your wonderful counselor and just say, I trust you more, even if I don't understand? Do you need to, to know him as mighty God who fights your battles? The everlasting father who's there to provide whatever you may need? Or do you need to know him as the Prince of Peace? And I want you to take just a moment and tell him that. Tell him. Pray and say, I need you to show yourself to me in this way. And that's what we're going to do right now to prepare our hearts. is just to communicate to him, this is what I need from you today. So let's pray. And then I'll lead us through a corporate prayer. And we'll, we'll take the elements together. Let's pray to you.
Lord Jesus, I pray even now that you will show yourself to us as we need each person, each of us. Lord, we, we, we need you. It may look different, but you know exactly what that is. So, Lord, we pour our hearts out to you today. And we tell you that we want to trust you fully. And we thank you for inviting us into relationship with you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. I want you to prepare, um, take the, the bread out of the bottom of the cup there. And just let this be a reminder in 1 Corinthians, uh, when Paul is reflecting back on what happened at that Last Supper, he talks about this. And it says that the, the body was broken for us. And then it talks about how his blood was shed for us. And it says that we are to do these things in remembrance of him. So when we have communion, it's a time to remember what Jesus has done for us. But then it also says, and as often as we do this, that we proclaim his death until he comes. So the fact that he's coming back. I mean, yes, Jesus died for us. His body was broken. His blood was spilled. But that's not the end of the story. He is coming back. And let's remember that today as we remember his body broken for us. Eat in remembrance of him. And then let's also remember the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us and drink in remembrance of them. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving your life for us. I thank you for the sacrifice, Lord. Lord, right now, um, I pray that, that our hearts are just so moved to worship. Lord, that, that we have such a desire to respond to your goodness that our hearts overflow, Lord, and we give our best to you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.